The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. A couple of announcements that we need to be aware of is that uh, we need some volunteers, some probably male volunteers, immediately following the service, we need to stack up about the first three rows on each side, take those chairs out of the way, and set up some tables. Uh, the last Monday of each month, I'm beginning a um, session for pastors on you know, just training on Bible study methods and Greek grammar for those who don't know Greek. So we'll be setting up for that in the morning. Second announcement is on February the 26th, we will have our annual congregational meeting immediately following the morning service. So there will be about a 10-minute break between the end of the morning service, and then we'll uh, call our meeting to order for the members of the church. Third, we need some volunteers for the pastor's conference, the Chafer Theological Seminary Pastor's Conference that will uh, be held here March 13th through the 16th. And if you would like to volunteer to help, we may need some folks to go up to the airport and pick up some pastors. We may need some uh, for uh, just shuttling people around. There may be just help around here uh, in various ways. Please see Connie Balthrop. And then uh, the last announcement, there will not be a teen class this morning. Uh, Ike is down with the flu. There's a number of other people who are down with the flu. And I always ask the congregation to, in the principle of loving one another, if you think you've got the flu, stay home. <laughs> Don't come and infect especially the pastor. <laughs> As we begin this morning, let's bow our heads for opening prayer. Lord, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to uh, worship you and praise you through music. Father, we thank you that you give us have provided the freedom for us through this nation that we can uh, freely serve you, worship you, study your word. We pray now as we come together as a congregation that our worship will glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning our scripture reading is from the 119th Psalm, beginning in verse 25. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I have declared my ways, and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me your law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. Let's stand together for hymn number two, uh, for our second hymn, hymn number 278, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. 
Scripture teaches that it is a responsibility of every believer priest to support the local church as well as missions. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the many ways in which you provide for us and take care of us, that you have promised to always supply all of our needs. And Father, as we give these gifts to you, we do this and realize that this is a token of our gratitude for all that you have freely supplied for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are prepared to study the Word. Scripture says that when we trust Christ as our Savior, we are forgiven of all sin, we have eternal life, and that can never be taken from us. Nevertheless, as we continue to live, we still have a sin nature, we still commit sin, and there needs to be ongoing cleansing. The promise of God in 1 John 1, 9 is that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we admit or acknowledge our sins to Him in the privacy of our priesthood, at that instant we are cleansed, we are forgiven, we recover the sanctifying ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. We continue to walk by means of the Spirit so that we can take in the Word of God and that we can continue to grow to spiritual maturity. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, from eternity past, you have declared the end from the beginning. And before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain for the sins of the world. The plan of salvation extends throughout all of history, and the focal point is the cross of Jesus Christ. That he was incarnate in the flesh, eternal God became man, for the purpose of going to the cross to die for our sins. This is the revolutionary event of all history that transformed and laid the basis for the ultimate redemption of, all man, of mankind and of all creation. And Father, we pray that as we study your word today and we continue to study about uh, how we as believers are involved in your plan of proclamation of the truth of the gospel, we pray that you would challenge us with these things. God the Holy Spirit would give us uh, fresh courage and ideas as we think about witnessing in the world around us and that we might have the courage and the strength that comes only from the power of God, the Holy Spirit, 
as we uh, are engaged in a witness of both our life and our lips. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we began a short study on, on witnessing, on communicating the gospel to those around us. And the foundation for this is laid in a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. This is part of our uh, witness. Acts 1.8, Jesus said, is his parting word to the disciples, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This lays out the witnessing game plan for the church age. The basis for this is in the doctrine of reconciliation, as we saw in our, the way we examined 2 Corinthians 5.18 and following. There the Apostle Paul says that all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, by way of uh, observation, we need to recognize that the us there is not an apostolic us. That's not a first-person plural referring to we the apostles. He's not talking about the fact that, that God gave to the apostles this ministry of reconciliation because the first use of the first-person plural there is in the previous phrase that God has reconciled us, that is, all who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. This reconciliation has taken place through Jesus Christ, and he has given us, the same people who were reconciled, he has given us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is part of our responsibility to communicate the gospel, the good news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is developed in the next verse where Paul says, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. That means that God was not reckoning their personal sins to them. Remember, the foundation of all uh, condemnation is the sin of Adam, Adam's original sin. And because of Adam's fall, as the old Puritan primer put it, in Adam's fall we sinned all. And so because Adam was the designated federal head of the human race, when he sinned in the Garden of Eden and disobeyed God, the entire race, the entire progeny of Adam fell in sin, and spiritual death and condemnation was passed on to all mankind. Now, there are some folks, and sometimes when you witness and you're explaining the gospel to folks, they'll say, well, that just doesn't seem to be uh, very fair because uh, I didn't have anything to do with that. Why should I be condemned for something that Adam did? And the answer to that is that God structured the creation and the human race in such a way that we are, in one sense, an organic or our federal a collective whole, so that there is a genetic relationship between all humanity. Therefore, because Adam was a designated head, when he fell, his condemnation passed to the entire human race. But the way God designed it was that this also meant that Jesus Christ, as true humanity, could die for the sins of the rest of the human race. So just as the guilt of Adam passed to the entire human race, so the salvation provided with Jesus Christ could pass to the entire human race because God designed this so that it would be this organic whole, that we are all related to one another genetically, and therefore Christ could die for 
the sins of the world. Now, that doesn't save you. Just because Christ died and paid the penalty does not mean all are saved. There has to be a volitional response, which is why God has committed to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ this ministry of announcing the gospel and explaining the gospel to all mankind. So Paul goes on to say, In verse 20, now then we, that is we believers, are ambassadors for Christ. And in this series where we're studying the foundation for living, that is the foundation for the Christian life, we have looked at the two aspects of the Christian life related to our priesthood that every believer at the instant of salvation is made a royal priest to God. Scripture says that we don't go through any intermediary other than the Lord Jesus Christ. First uh, Timothy two seven says, For there is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. There is no human priesthood through whom to go uh, in, in uh, approaching God. We go directly to God as believer priests. So every believer is a priest and has direct access to God the Father through and only through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are also ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. Our priesthood has to do with our relationship to God. The ambassadorship has to do with our relationship to humanity. We are sent forth as messengers from the kingdom of God. We are citizens of God's kingdom. Our citizenship is not of the earth, it is of heaven. And we go forth with a divine commission to announce the message of salvation to mankind. And just as I pointed out last time, as as ambassadors, we are in a foreign culture, which the Scripture describes as the world system or the cosmic system, and we are to represent God and Christ to the cosmic system, and we are not to become distracted or enveloped in the thinking of this foreign culture. That is why you go to church. You go to church so that you can learn to think biblically as citizens of heaven, learn to think in terms of the culture of Scripture and not the culture of of humanity. That's what we call divine viewpoint versus human viewpoint. So we are ambassadors for Christ, Paul says, as though God were pleading through us. See, God is not going to save people apart from certain means that he has ordained. And one of those means is through the those who proclaim the gospel. How shall they hear if there is not one to proclaim the truth, Isaiah says. So we are sent forth to, to proclaim the gospel. And it is only through believers and their proclamation of the gospel that the gospel goes forth. God doesn't make an end run around us. So we have the privilege to be included within his plan, and people are not saved because of us, they're saved through us. And it's a glorious thing when we have that privilege to be used by the Lord to communicate the gospel to folks. And we never know how that is going to uh, come to fruition. It may uh, take years, it may take months, we never know, we may never see in this life how we fit within that overall plan. I pointed out last time, as the Apostle Paul stated that using the agricultural analogy, that one plants, another waters, and another brings in the harvest. So we don't know where we fit in the process with 
with many people. We just have that opportunity to communicate the gospel, and we may be the one who just plants the seed. We may be someone who comes along and restates the gospel. They've heard it two or three times. They hear it again, and they're going to hear it five, six, eight, ten, fifteen more times before finally they make a a decision to trust Christ as their Savior. So we don't know where we are in the process. Our responsibility is simply to be faithful. It's not our job to solve every problem, answer every question, deal with every objection. It is not our job to convince people of the truth of the gospel. It is our job to explain the gospel. Now, that takes a load of responsibility off of most folks when they come to understand that because too often we put ourselves under this load of responsibility that, that in, and we end up intimidating ourselves and scaring ourselves off so that I'm not, well, I'm not ready to handle that person. They've got objections. They've got questions I don't quite know how to deal with, so I'll just pray about it. And so we feel very sanctimonious as we just back off and pray about it instead of being involved and being part of the process. So we are ambassadors for Christ, and God is pleading through us. And Paul says, we implore you on Christ's behalf to, this is the message, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. And then verse 21 states a foundational part of the message. And this relates to the uh, doctrine of justification by faith alone. That we, for he who made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. At the cross, Jesus Christ had the, received the imputation. That's a fancy word for accounting. It was a, actually the, the original Greek and also the Hebrew word were accounting terms for you accountants. It just shows how uh, much of the Bible, especially the gospel, relates to economic concepts. You talk about redemption and uh, reconciliation and canceling the debt of trespasses against us. These are all economic terms. So the Bible, once again, addresses every area, every area of human activity, and even the gospel is presented in this economic terminology. So if you're involved in economics, you can do a little extra thought in terms of how that would affect a view of uh, finances and economics. Our sins were imputed to Jesus Christ so that he was not personally guilty of sin. Remember, he was without sin. But he receives the imputation of our sin. The judgment is, is put upon him judicially so that he becomes our substitute. He made him who knew no sin to be sin as a substitute for us, literally. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the purpose for his death is so that when we trust in him, as our Savior, then His perfect righteousness is in turn instantly imputed, reckoned, or accounted to our account. It is uh, not, it's, we're born with a negative amount in our account, as it were. There is a deficit, and when we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, there is a positive balance that can never be. Undone. It is ours. His righteousness is now our righteousness. And so when God the Father looks at us in His justice, He doesn't see the sin, the failure in, on, in our lives. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And so at that instant, He declares us to be justified. And this is the foundational doctrine that undergirds all of salvation, the doctrine of justification 
by faith alone, that we are declared just not on the basis of who and what we are or what we do or any morality on our part or any religious activity on our part. We are declared just because we possess His righteousness, and that occurs at the instant of salvation. And that's the foundation of the gospel, and that should be part of our uh, presentation when we're explaining the gospel to folks as to how we are saved. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to His mercy, He saves us by the washing of regeneration renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, last time I pointed out several principles related to witnessing that I want to briefly review. I'm only going to review uh, three of these. I gave about nine or ten, but I'm just going to uh, briefly touch on three of those by way of review. First of all, that witnessing is the responsibility of every believer. God has designated that it is through us that he is going to present the gospel. And we are witnesses in two areas, in our life and through our lips. Uh, they work together. They're, you can't separate one from the other. There are some folks who say, well, I'll just let my life be my testimony. Well, nobody's going to get saved. Nobody's going to understand the, the content of the gospel by just watching how any believer lives. They have to hear the specifics, which are that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and by faith alone in Christ alone we have salvation. So our life merely backs up what we say with our testimony. Now, part of this is a recognition that all believers are still sinners and that salvation is based on grace. Because sometimes folks will say, well, Christians are just uh, holier than thou, and that's the legalistic type. And uh, it's not what we do. It's never what we do. So we are always going to fail. Every believer has a sin nature and is going to fail in all kinds of different ways. And we recognize that we're all saved by grace. No one is any better than anyone else. And Jesus Christ died equally for the sins of every single human being so that we all get saved the same way by trusting in Christ alone. The third principle I gave last time, point, the point three from the list I gave, is that the effectiveness of our witnessing depends on the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, not on our own power, not on our own intellectual ability or on our own persuasiveness. It's not up to us. It's not our talent. It's not our, our ability. It is simply that we are faithful in communicating and explaining the gospel as clearly as we can. And sometimes you fumble and you bumble around, and we've all done that, and yet God the Holy Spirit uses that to make the gospel clear for folks. And it, it always amazes me, as the years go by, I'll hear of somebody who uh, heard something I was teaching, and I hardly even touched on the gospel, and yet the Holy Spirit made the gospel clear just in the brief, something brief that I said about the gospel. And so we never know how the Holy Spirit is using it. It's up to us simply to be uh, faithful as part of our responsibility of our ambassadorship. Romans 1.16 says that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is God who has the, the power in the process of witnessing. It's God the Holy Spirit who makes it clear, and it's God the, God, God the Father who makes, makes things uh, clear. The, it, the power is not in us. It is in God. 
Point number six, that God uses prepared believers. God uses prepared believers. We need to know the biblical issues related to salvation. That salvation isn't, uh, as many people want to put it today, inviting Jesus into your heart or inviting Jesus into your life. It's not some psychological renewal. It's not uh, some emotional experience. Salvation has to do with trusting Christ as Savior. So we have to make sure that the issues of sin and condemnation related to Adam's original sin are made clear, as I've done this morning. We also need to make sure that people understand who Jesus Christ is. That we talk about Jesus, we are not talking about the Jesus of the Krishnas, the Jesus that the Muslims recognize, who's simply a great prophet, and but a man. The Jesus of any other religious system, but that the Jesus of the Bible is both the eternal God of the universe who created everything, and he is... Uh, He became flesh. He entered into human history, took on true humanity without giving up his deity so that he is both undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person. And that these these realities lay the foundation for what he could do on the cross. And because he is who he claimed to be, he could go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sin only Only God could take care of the problem, and only a man could die as our substitute. So both of these have to be true. We have to understand the doctrine of justification by faith so that we can make it clear that it's not by our own works. We we can do nothing to uh, achieve the righteousness of God. The Old Testament teaches in Isaiah that all of our works of righteousness, not our unrighteousness, but all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, that no matter how good we get, no matter how much good we perform, God looks at it and the sum total of our best is filthy rags in the sight of God because it doesn't measure up to His standard of perfect righteousness. So once people understand that it's not up to them, it's up to Christ, and that the issue is not their failures, their sin, it is their trust in Christ as Savior that is the issue for salvation, that nothing else matters. And if anything else is introduced into the equation, if it's faith plus ritual, faith plus uh, any kind of uh, religious activity, faith plus morality, faith plus baptism, faith plus commitment, then it, the, whatever you add to it totally destroys faith, because it's not simple faith alone in Christ. It's faith plus something else, and man is bringing his own works, his own effort, whatever it may be, to the table to try to impress God. So this is completely rejected. It is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Now, that brought, brings us up to about the point where I stopped last time. And I wanted to go over some general guidelines for witnessing, just some general guidelines that you should think about that should shape your thinking in the process of explaining the gospel to co-workers, friends, family, strangers, whoever. We have to think within a biblical framework. First principle, if God exists, then reality is what God says it is. Now think about that. If God exists, then reality is what He says it is. So when we are witnessing to folks, we are coming from a position of strength because we understand the nature of reality 
and they're divorced from reality. So we're from, we can operate with confidence. Furthermore, the next point, if God exists, then he has revealed that reality to us. We have the game plan. We have the owner's manual. We have the scripture. He has revealed the word of his word to us. He has informed us what the nature of reality is. He has informed us what the nature of the problem is between man and himself so that we are informed as to what the real dynamics are in the uh, witnessing process and what the problems are. We know what the rules are. We've read the rule book. The unbeliever hasn't. And as it were, we are playing the playing chess, but the unbeliever comes to the table and he's trying to play checkers. And he's trying to play according to the rules or whatever game he wants to play, but we understand what the real game is and what the rules are. So we have to make sure that he conforms to the rules of reality. We aren't going to compromise by slipping into his presuppositions. You're not going to start playing checkers in order to bring him into a chess game. You have to challenge him with the fact that his whole concept of reality is distorted and is false. That leads to the third principle. If God exists, the unbeliever is what God says he is. Now, he may deny that. He may reject that. He may not want to admit it. He may be running from it. And as the scripture says, he is suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. He's enveloping it in his own arrogant uh, distortion of reality. But nevertheless, in the core of his soul, every unbeliever, every person knows that God exists and that he is who the Bible says he is. So if God exists, the unbeliever is what God says he is, and he knows what God says he knows. Now, he may deny it. He may have figured out a way to... Uh, cover this all over with a uh, thick uh, callus, but nevertheless, at the very core of his soul, he knows what God says he knows. This leads to the fourth point. The The unbeliever, according to the Scripture, the unbeliever is able to understand enough of the meaning of the non-verbal revelation of creation to know that God exists and to be accountable to that. Now, let me break that down a little bit. First of all, what the Scripture says is the unbeliever is able to understand from the nonverbal revelation of creation. Now, what, what, is, what in the world does that mean? Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1.19-22 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because, now this is the important part to pay attention to, because that which is known about God is evident within them. Now here you have an atheist, you have an agnostic, you have some uh, Buddhist or Muslim or somebody, and they're saying, this is who God is or God doesn't exist. But the God of the Bible says that they, the God who created them says that everything, enough knowledge of him is within them Because God made it evident to them. How did he do that? Through the nonverbal evidence in creation. Verse 24, since the creation of the world, 
His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. It's not muddy. Now they're going to say, oh, you know, it wasn't enough. And when they stand before the great white throne judgment, God's going to say, you knew. And they're, they're going to know that they knew. They're not going to be able to blow smoke anymore. Now they can blow smoke at you and blow smoke at me, but that doesn't mean that they uh, really buy that in the core of their soul. So Scripture says His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. The heavens declare the glory of God. So that there's a nonverbal testimony by the evidence of creation around us, the, the, the complexity of creation, the details of creation, the design of creation. Everything uh, around us is the result of God's creation, and a tree is what it is because God made it that way. The, the, the universe and the stars are what they are because God made them that way. Flowers are what they are because God made them that way. And every time you look, every time any human being looks at any aspect of the creation, he sees God's name attached to it. And he wants to suppress that in unrighteousness. That's the result of sin and rebellion against God. But what this is saying is that everything screams to him that God exists. God has made it evident within them, and these, uh, the evidence of his creation is clearly seen, and this speaks of his invisible attributes, his power, his nature, so that uh, they understand uh, who he is, and they are without excuse. There's accountability. There's enough evidence just in the nonverbal witness of creation to make every human being accountable for, a, for rejecting God if they... Uh, reject him and are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The result of this is that even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. The principle here is that whenever somebody rejects the God of the Bible, they always substitute something else. Something else always takes its place. Either they start worshiping themselves or they start worshiping some other aspect of the creation. They worship power. They worship money. They worship material things. They worship uh, intellectual ability. Whatever it may be, something always takes the place of God. When you take God out, something goes into the vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. Spiritual reality abhors a vacuum. And when you reject God, the God of the Bible, you're going to substitute something else and you're going to worship something in the creation. And the conclusion then of Paul is professing to be wise, they become fools. They build these sophisticated intellectual castles to explain creation, to explain reality, to explain who man is, and to explain everything about creation. But it's all foolishness. It may seem sophisticated, they may have triple PhDs, but it's Foolishness. They're worshiping some aspect and they're deifying at some level some aspect of the creation. Now, this is a framework that we come to when we're explaining the gospel. We don't, that, I don't mean that we're going to go through this with, uh, with an unbeliever, but this sets your mindset and my mindset so that we recognize that, that if Scripture says that God exists, and if God exists, then creation is what he says it is, the unbeliever is what he says he is, and the unbeliever knows what God says he knows. 
In other words, you're, you may be talking to somebody who's putting up a, a smoke screen of atheism or agnosticism, but in their core, the core of their heart, they know that what you're saying is true. So it's almost like having a fifth column operating in their soul. And that God the Holy Spirit is also working with what we say to make it clear. Now, that doesn't mean they'll respond. That doesn't mean they'll believe because there's still that negative volition suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But it lets us know that we, we operate from a position of strength. And we're not just out there on our own. And it's not dependent upon our intellectual abilities to answer every objection or know every detail or twist or of all the different uh, arguments from skepticism that, that can possibly be presented. Therefore, point number five, the ultimate issue, therefore, is not evidence, it's not reason, and it's not empirical data. Now, I'm not saying that there's no evidence or it's contrary to the evidence. I'm not saying it's irrational, and I'm not saying that it's not based on empirical data. What I am saying is that ultimately the issue isn't evidence. God says there's enough evidence to accuse them, that there's more than enough evidence for them to know that God exists. So the issue isn't evidence. It's not reason. In the core of their thinking, they know God exists. The, the evidence is an empirical data. You can pile up all the uh, arguments for the existence of God and all the evidence for Christianity, and you can pile it up to the top of the stratosphere, and because it's not an intellectual issue, but a spiritual issue, the unbeliever can still say, well, you know, that's all very fascinating, but I don't buy it, because he is committed to suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's our job, it's not our job to convince them of the truth of the gospel. It's not our job to argue them with the most sophisticated philosophical, theological arguments. It's our job to make the issue clear, and God the Holy Spirit then takes that and drives it home, and then it's their responsibility whether they accept it are rejected. So the problem is not an intellectual problem. The problem is not a, a problem of empiricism or rationalism. It's not a matter of not having enough evidence. It is a matter of a disposition of the soul to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But the bottom line is that this gives us great confidence because it's not up to us. We don't leave the conversation by saying, well, you know, if I had just been able to answer that argument, if I had just known a little more, if I had just taken a few more courses, maybe gone to Bible college or seminary, then I could handle what this individual said. The issue isn't intellectual, rational, empirical. The issue is volitional and spiritual. So the, all we have to do is make the gospel clear. Furthermore, point number six, if God exists, as the Bible says He exists, then the Holy Spirit is doing certain things behind the scenes in the soul of the unbeliever making the issue clear. So we, we can approach an unbeliever and we know two things. We know, number one, he already knows God exists. doesn't matter what the smokescreen is, he already knows God exists. And number two... As I am communicating the gospel in whatever fumbling, bumbling manner I've got, 
God the Holy Spirit is taking it and making it clear. Now, as we mature as believers and as we advance in our abilities to make the gospel clear, then it, in a sense, it it uh, it, it helps. It's not an. Uh, what I'm saying here is, it's not a. Just because the Holy Spirit's making it clear doesn't give you an excuse to to be unclear and fuzzy in your gospel presentation. But as we grow and as we are more experienced in explaining the gospel with folks, then we can uh, be a little more adept in our presentation. And one of the passages that the Scripture uses that talks about the role of the Holy Spirit gives us an idea of what the Holy Spirit is honing in on when we're explaining the gospel to somebody. And that's in John chapter uh, 16. John chapter 16 informs us of the role of God the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important because uh, there are some different views out there on just exactly what's going on in the communication process. And this is, goes back to a principle in 1 Corinthians 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural man, that's the unbeliever, the word there in the Greek is sukikos, it means he has a soul, but he lacks a human spirit, which is what comes with regeneration. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. That is, in context, the things of the Spirit of God or divine revelation as contained within the canon of Scripture. So the soulish man does not receive, he doesn't accept, he doesn't understand the things of the Spirit Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. It doesn't make sense within his finite human viewpoint frame of reference. So it appears to be foolishness to him, nor can he know them, Paul says, because they are spiritually discerned. And that last phrase, spiritually discerned, indicates that there is something that is acquired at salvation, which we call the human spirit, which is what Adam lost when he died spiritually, when he sinned, that there is something acquired at salvation, at regeneration, called the human spirit, which enables the individual to understand the things of God. So how can an unbeliever understand the things of God if he's spiritually dead? Well, this is the solution in John 16 is that it is God the Holy Spirit who substitutes for this human spirit to make the gospel clear to the unbeliever. John 16:7 Jesus is giving his parting words to the disciples the night before he goes to the cross and he says, "But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away." For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. In other words, I need to leave so this other Helper that is of the same kind I am, referring to the Holy Spirit and His deity, will come. And He is the one who is going to indwell you and enable you and strengthen you in the spiritual life. So He says, the Helper shall not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. Now the Helper is a translation of the Greek word parakletos. Some translations use the word comforter. Uh, Some translations uh, use uh, different English words to translate this. The idea of a paraclete comes from the Greek, two words in the Greek. Kaleo is the verb from kletos, meaning to call, and para is a preposition meaning alongside, and it comes to refer to somebody who is an assistant or a helper to someone else. 
He comes alongside. So it is God the Holy Spirit who is, I don't like that word comforter, He is a helper, He is an assistant, He is one who gives us the strength and the power to live the Christian life and to fulfill the responsibilities of our ambassadorship, the duties of our priesthood. So this is the spiritual life is dependent upon the power and ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So he says, I will send the paraclete, the assistant, to you. Verse 8, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Three things that he is going to do. And the word convict here is the Greek word elenko, which means to to uh, to bring something into a courtroom and establish a case to demonstrate its veracity. It is a courtroom term. So what this passage says is that God the Holy Spirit is going to build a, 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 an, an unshakable case concerning three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, who is he going to build this case to? To believers? No. To the world. Who's the world? The world is the group of unbelievers who inhabit this globe for whom Christ died. For God so loved the, what? The world that he gave his unique son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. So this group of people known as the world for whom Christ died are the people that the Holy Spirit is going to make this unshakable, unbreakable case concerning the truth of the gospel. And it's going to relate to three issues, sin, righteousness, and judgment. We get the explanation starting in verse 9 concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Now this is not saying that unbelief is a sin. It is saying that God the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, that they are in condemnation, because of Adam's original sin, and they are in that state of sin because they do not believe in, in Christ. The solution has not yet been applied to their uh, condemnation of, of Adam's original sin. Second thing the Holy Spirit is, is emphasizing is righteousness. Now, we've already mentioned this. This is the whole doctrine of justification by faith, that word justification that we use and righteousness both translate a, the same word group out of the Greek. There is a Greek word group based on the word dikaiosune. You've got dikaios, which is righteousness. You've got dikaio, which is justice. You've got this whole word group is either translated righteousness or justice, depending on the context. But this shows that righteousness and justice are interrelated concepts. Same thing's true about Hebrew. In the Hebrew language, you have a word group based on, on the noun sadik, which means righteousness or sometimes justice. And these concepts interrelate. So the Holy Spirit is not only convicting, making an unshakable, unbreakable case to the unbeliever that in Adam's fall we sinned all and we're all under condemnation, but he is also going to emphasize the point that what is needed to be saved, to have a relationship with God, is the righteousness of God. You have to meet the standard of his righteousness. Anything less than that 
is not going to cut it. And Scripture says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which is another term for his righteousness and his character. So God the Holy Spirit is going to be making an unshakable, unbreakable case that you don't match God's righteousness. Even your best deeds are what the Scripture says, uh, filthy rags. So he builds this case uh, for righteousness. And then third, concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world has been judged. At the cross, Jesus Christ is judged for the sin of the world. It is that judgment that defeats Satan. Satan is the ruler of this world. And it is the judgment of Christ on the cross for sin that completes the promise of God that was first articulated in Genesis 3.15 after the original sin that the uh, seed of the serpent would bruise the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, indicating a fatal wound. And this is, this is completed by Christ's death on the cross. He is judged for sin, and this uh, is the final nail in the coffin of Satan, as it were. So we have, a, we have two things working for us in any gospel presentation. The unbeliever, despite whatever objections he may have, is saying, I don't believe in God. Maybe one of the things that we need to ask in the midst of a gospel presentation is not why should you believe in, in God, but are not answering that question, why they should believe in God, but saying, why are you rejecting God? Why do you reject God? Because that's what's really going on. Just focusing on the real issue is they are choosing to reject God. Now, why don't you want God to exist? And what's their answer going to be? Give them an opportunity to think that through. Okay. Ninth point. Our verbal witness must be one that doesn't compromise our view of reality. Our verbal witness must be one that doesn't compromise our view of reality. What do I mean by this? Well, we have to understand a couple of principles. First of all, witnessing isn't a debate. Don't get it involved in this is, this is my thinking ability versus your thinking and ability. I'm going to be right and prove that I'm right and you're wrong. Witnessing isn't a debate. It's not about who's right. It's not about convincing someone that they're wrong and you're right. We must remember it's not our job to win them. That's the job of God the Holy Spirit. And it's our job to simply communicate the information. What happens if we get off track is we start trying to use their frame of reference to convince them of the truth of our position. And in doing that, we compromise the foundation of our position. So it's important not only to have the right content in our witnessing in terms of the gospel, but also the right methodology. We're not selling Jesus like a marketing tool. We are making an announcement of that the fact that the Son of the Eternal God became flesh, dwelt among us, and went to the cross to die on the cross for our sins. And it's our job just to make that clear. And then God the Holy Spirit is going to take whatever we communicate and He's going to drive it home into the thinking of the unbeliever and then it's up to them to decide and we can just relax if they decide to reject Christ fine we just keep moving maybe we'll get another chance to talk with them later maybe not furthermore we have to recognize that that it takes often it takes time in the in a witnessing 
process. Most people don't respond right off the bat. So we go through a period of time. We may witness. Somebody else may explain the gospel to them. And we can relax knowing that God is the one who is in charge. It is our responsibility, Scripture says, we are all ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. So this lays the foundation for our responsibility as ambassadors to witness and to explain the gospel to unbelievers. Now, there's a lot more that we can say about methodology and how to witness, but that gets beyond the basics. And this is a basic series that we're actually concluding this morning on the basic responsibilities and duties of the priesthood of the believer and his ambassadorship. So... Next week, we're going to come back, and we're going to have a couple of specials for a couple of weeks, and then we'll get back in our study of Revelation in probably two or three weeks with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Remember, we have a new closing procedure where after I close in prayer, we will stand and sing a hymn, and then there will be a closing prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the clarity of your word to rely on that your word communicates clearly to us who we are and the problems with the human race, which is sin and disobedience, specifically that of Adam, and that we are all guilty and we are born spiritually dead, separated from you and without eternal life. But you loved us and demonstrated your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You sent your Son to pay the penalty for our sins, to die as our substitute, that we might have eternal life. But the issue is related to our volition. We have to make a decision. So Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's an unshakable, unbreakable promise that we will have eternal life simply by trusting, relying exclusively upon Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. Perhaps this, this morning you're here And you're not sure if you're saved. You have no confidence in your eternal salvation. But this morning you've heard the gospel. It's clear. This is your opportunity to put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of uh, reforming your life, being involved in certain ritual, uh, walking down an aisle, or any other uh, human activity. It is a matter of your trust. And the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father and His omniscience knows what you are relying upon for salvation. In that instant, you receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. You are declared just. You are born again. You receive new life and eternal life, which can never be taken from you. And you will have the certainty and surety of your salvation. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've studied in terms of our responsibility of our ambassadorship, that we might go forth and uh, be willing to be used by you to announce the a message of reconciliation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.